0: Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history and the 2023 winner of an award of merit for excellence from the Connecticut League of History Organizations brought to you by Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Mary Donahue. In almost any gift shop that you go to in New England, you will probably find lighthouses pictured on tea towels and t-shirts and in snow globes. Lighthouses are fondly thought of as community landmarks and icons. The state of Connecticut has 14 active lighthouses, two of which are maintained as private aids to navigation. Six are standing but inactive. Some are located on dry land, but a significant number are located in the water of the Long Island Sound. Some are now private homes but many can be enjoyed by the public, including several that are periodically open to the public by some of the state's history museums. As early as the 1880s, the federal government encouraged lighthouse keepers to open the lighthouses to visitors and tourists. The National Historic Lighthouse Preservation Act of 2000 provides an opportunity for the preservation of federally owned historic light stations, which is the other federal word for lighthouses. The program is a partnership among the United States Coast Guard, the National Park Service of the Department of the Interior, the General Service Administration, and new stewards such as the New London Maritime Society and the Norwalk Seaport Association. My guests for this episode are Susan Tanlovich, Executive Director of the New London Maritime Society since 2008, during which time the society became stewards of three area lighthouses. My second guest is Jordan Jackson, a recent graduate of Central Connecticut State University. Jordan, a Grading the Nutmeg listener and a lighthouse fan, will share her firsthand experience from a visit to the Sheffield Island Lighthouse in Norwalk Harbor, administered by the Norwalk Seaport Association. Welcome to the podcast. Thank because, you. You know, lighthouses are so fascinating for so many reasons. They have their architecture, engineering, technology, maritime history, even social history. Susan, your organization now has three lighthouses that you manage and maintain, including New London Harbor Lighthouse, New London Ledge Light, and Race Point Light. Let's start with the oldest one on the Long Island Sound, New London Harbor Light. Tell us about that lighthouse. The oldest
1: and the tallest. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. It's a classic octagon, and it was in the 1750s. Well, if you go back further, when New London was named, it was named the New London. It was supposed to be this big center in the new world. And people had great hopes for it because of the terrific, deep natural harbor. It it was always uh, an important shipping center. It was always the customs, customs city for the colony of uh, Connecticut and then for the state of Connecticut, it it was important. And they wanted it to really work and really function because if you got in from the Atlantic into Long Island Sound, you were in a very safe area. There wasn't, uh, there weren't storms. There wasn't terrible turbulence to the water once you got into the Sound. And then ships of any size could come in because of this great harbor. That was at New London. So when in the 1750s, a Spanish ship came up the coast and it had some kind of... damage done to it. I don't know if it was in a hurricane or what exactly happened, but it had to come into New London for repairs. It came through the race, which is the opening where Long Island Sound opens out to the Atlantic. And it ended up on the Bartlett Reef. It did not end up at the harbor as you, you know, as as was intended. And Long Island Sound, as you know, is formed by the glacier. So whereas it is like a big bathtub and with a sandbar at one end, which is Long Island, there are a lot of erratics and reefs and rocks just below the surface of the water that make it a little bit treacherous getting to that very deep channel. The Spanish ship ended up going on the reef, and there were uh, looters and a lot of problems <laughs> for two years as they tried to get a new ship to take this treasure, treasure from middle America, gold and silver, everything you might imagine on an 18th century Spanish ship. There, there were a lot of, it, it was all bad press for New London. So the city fathers got together, merchants got together, and they said, "Listen, we can't just have a bonfire out here at the at the point where the Thames estuary opens to Long Island Sound. A a bonfire will not cut it. We need an actual lighthouse." And there had been a couple of lighthouses built. uh, The first one in Boston. There'd been one in Montauk. There's one at Beavertail, and the fourth one was new london they built this lighthouse and it was built not with money from the colony but from local merchants who had a lottery the same way they do today to raise money for various things they had a lottery they raised the money they built the lighthouse and it was um, a very significant improvement to new london harbor so that lighthouse was up for i don't know 30 years developed a crack and after the revolution, it was one of the very one of the very first acts of the new government was to uh, adopt and take over all these private lighthouses that had been built in the country. And New London Harbor Light was one of those. And they also signed a a bill to rebuild it. So the lighthouse that is there now, which was built by New London builder Abisha Woodward. Uh, in 1801, is the same lighthouse that you see today. That's amazing, and I, I
0: understand that George Washington himself actually signed something that allowed for lighthouses to have supplies at one point.
1: Yeah, it was one of the very first things that were, you know, one one of the first laws that was that were that was signed. Yes, George Washington himself did. And it's an in, it's an interesting thing because New London, you know, became the second leading for a, a brief period, a couple of decades, the second leading whaling port in the world. And what did all these lighthouses use in their lights, but whale oil and, and ideally spermaceti oil. So New London has an important Lighthouse, but it also provided for all the lighthouses around the world that spermaceti oil that's so clean and burns so brightly.
0: That's a big Connecticut connection. On the other end of the state, in Norwalk Harbor, Jordan, you recently paid a visit to the Sheffield Island Lighthouse. Tell us about that visit.
2: Um, So, yes, I went to Sheffield Island. Um, It was really nice because it started out with a, a nice little Ferry ride, and they had told us really a lot of interesting facts, facts such as um, the fact that there was 40 nesting pairs of ospreys, and I also didn't know that they were monogamous, so those birds they mate for life. There was like other facts as well. There used to be, we passed an island called Tavern Island. It was named that because there used to have a lot of speakeasy. There, there was a speakeasy there. And they would ship rum out to Manhattan. And so if you if you go to Tavern Island on a clear day, you can look out and see Manhattan, that Manhattan skyline. Then, so when I walked onto the island, um, when you first walk onto it, you see a sign that says, Welcome to Sheffield. Um, and then it's it has a nice little barrel of flowers underneath. Um, And then if you look to your left, you can see a nice little picnic area. It has a nice big table and, you know, people were just eating there, just having fun. And then if you look a little bit to the front, there's about four chairs out and you can just look at the island and all of its beauty and just enjoy the water. And it was very, very serene. And finally, the lighthouse itself was great because there's a nice little stone path to it. And when you walk in, you see one of the rooms to the left that has a mirror. And I think it has like a little doll. Um, it's imitating a child's room. And then you see their living room. And then you also see you also see their kitchen and you can see their kitchen has a really old timey stove. One of the interesting things about that is that actually the family who lived there originally, they had 12 kids. And so that teacher, interestingly enough, she would she would row there and teach them and then she would row back. So that was really interesting because they had so many kids that they basically had their own school district.
0: Now, I read that at one point, they actually tried to make a resort out of this lighthouse in the 1930s. And it had a golf course and tennis courts. But it seemed to not last too long. The whole enterprise shut down in 1937 because they didn't have fresh water on the island. What's the island as a whole used for now?
2: So the island as a whole, is actually owned by the the Norwalk Seaport Association. And it's used for wildlife refuge and also historical um, tours during the summer. So that's just what it's used for.
0: So it's nice. So it's got that natural provision for nesting birds, as you were saying, and all this scenery. And then you've also got the lighthouse. It's
2: definitely a nice little trip to take with your family. Um, If you just want to relax
0: on a Saturday or
2: Sunday, I would definitely recommend
0: it. Susan, now you have two other lighthouses that you administer and obviously run tours of, too. I know that both of these would be a great trip because I've actually been out to both of those. these in New London. But tell us a little bit about the one called uh, Race
1: Rock. Race Rock was completed in 1878, 1879, 1878. And it was built like Sheffield Island, for a family to be out there, a keep, or a couple of families, the keeper and the assistant keeper. Initially, and when we got the deed, it said that we also had a piece of property at the point on Fishers Island. That caused a little bit of commotion for a while, to think that we would own... Part of that uh, property but they straightened that out fast enough. The idea was that the keepers would live on shore and go out to Race Rock but the water was so treacherous that the keepers ended up living out at the lighthouse. There is a famous story of one of the keepers who who in the 1880s there was a very uh, severe cold spell and the Mystic River froze, and I guess he was from Noank, and he wanted to, you know, his job was to keep the ship safe and to keep the lighthouse fires lit. Thomas Carroll, his name is, he went out to the lighthouse and was never seen again, except two weeks later, I believe his leg arrived on shore. He was, um, he died trying to keep the the lighthouse going it was very difficult work and it was treacherous and particularly at race rock which is in what's called the race which is where the atlantic tries to force itself into long island sound and if you think of a hose and you put your finger over the end of the hose with the water pouring out that's what it's like it's very turbulent water there, there was, as I said, the glacier. Lots of rocks under the underneath the surface of the water, and race rock was the cause of at least one major wreck every single year towards the end of the nineteenth um, century. So they agreed to pay an enormous amount of money to build this lighthouse, and they contracted uh, Hopkins and Smith to be the engineer. And he brought in Thomas Scott, Captain Thomas Scott, who settled after that in New London and had a big salvage company and construction company. He, he brought him in to do the amazing project of building a foundation in that treacherous uh, churning water. And they tried following what the government suggested, which was laying cut stone in a pattern which they knew wouldn't work. And after one winter, the stone was strewn all over the place. Frankly, we're having that problem right now with some enormous stones, cut stones, the size of refrigerators that have appeared right at the landing area to get to Race Rock. So how we're going to get rid of them, I don't know. But it's a big problem. And where did they come from? It's interesting. It's like a Sheffield Island is big enough
0: I think I read they have maybe 40 or 50 acres, Jordan. It's big enough to really be a, have a little, almost like a little community and be a a pretty substantial piece of land. But race rock is literally like just a rock surrounded by water without any real land around it. So exactly. That, that construction had to be really difficult. It was
1: a dollars. very early early example of using concrete underwater, an innovative example. And they built it up like a wedding cake in tears. In the end, they did away with a stone bit. They built it like a wedding cake with tiers of concrete. And then they built, it took them, I think, seven years to do the foundation. And, and lives were lost. But then the terrific uh, lighthouse was built on the top and it's stood ever since we received these through lighthouse these three lighthouses through the lighthouse preservation act of 2000 which mary knows everything about because she was part of that right yep we worked on that mm-hmm. and um we we were told that the three lighthouses that we have are three of the most solid standing out there because they were built Either before or after, what was a very bad period in lighthouse construction when the man named Samuel Pleasance ran the lighthouse? I don't know what it was. Uh, what, whatever the, the the American Lighthouse uh, the service, yeah, lighthouse service, service. was, yeah, and uh, he cut a lot of corners. But Harbor Light was built very solidly, and Race Rock was built incredibly solidly and, and uh, ledge light too. So we're quite lucky.
0: We'll be back in a minute with my guest. I just recently saw this exhibit and I couldn't recommend it more highly. The Litchfield Historical Society's newest exhibition, To Come to a Land of Milk and Honey, Litchfield and the Connecticut Western Reserve is now on display. Learn more about this land in present day Ohio that was reserved by Connecticut after the American Revolution for its continued use and settlement. Exhibition supported by a grant from Connecticut Humanities. Learn more and plan your visit with free admission at LitchfieldHistoricalSociety.org.
2: Kick back and celebrate Labor Day with Connecticut Explored. From September 1st through September 7th, new subscriptions will receive 25% off our regular, senior, or organizational partner member subscription rates. Visit ctexplored.org slash subscribe and use discount code Labor Day 23 to purchase your one or two year discounted subscription today. That's L-A-B-O-R-D-A-Y-2-3.
0: Happy Labor Day! I don't want to forget about ledge light because that's the one you really see from the shore. And it's so eye-catching because it is a solid square, two-story red brick house with a big French mansard roof on it. Mm -hmm. It looks like a mansion, even when you look at it from the, the shoreline. And yet it also has practically no perimeter ground around it at all. It really sits on what looks like a block of concrete. That one I read has, it has a cellar in the upper portion of the concrete pier that they would use to store coal and oil for the lighthouse. Mm -hmm. It has a cistern for water and it has a fog signal engine room. Then it has a kitchen, a sitting room, a workroom, and a bedroom on the first story. And then the second story had four bedrooms. And the third story was divided into three rooms one of which contained the fog signal apparatus. Was that one occupied by a family or was that always occupied by just paid
1: keepers or how did that one work, Susan? Well, I I guess the first thing to say is it was built in 1909 and we had uh, race rock where the water comes in from the Atlantic, had harbor light on shore. And this was like second base. Because, you know, you can only see so far, the light could only be projected so far. So they felt they needed a second, an intermediate lighthouse. And um, at that time, by that time, they were building the sort of uh, coffee pot style lighthouses that you see, like Orient Point or Latimer Reef, or there's tons of them. And they're all, they're very nice. But they were too modern for the the wealthy shoreline inhabitants of uh, Waterford and Groton. So it is believed, although we've never been able to find any proof of this, that they put up the money to put in a more graceful style of lighthouse. It wasn't it it wasn't like they just built a mansion out there. They built a different style. And if you look at North Dumpling, That's like a one-story version of uh, ledge light. And if you look at the keeper's house that had been at Little Gull, that was very much also like ledge light, and the the, the lighthouses they they evolved. You know, they 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 did one design and then they modified it, and you can sort of trace them coming down the Hudson River, the the various styles. So what they did for for ledge light, because you had these wealthy people who were willing to, to put in some funds, apparently, you have a, a more graceful house out there. And to begin with, yes, a lighthouse keeper and his family would live there or a keeper, an assistant keeper and their families. But uh, when the Coast Guard took over, they would have a supervisor and three younger people who would rotate. And I'll tell you something about ledge light. Yeah, everybody loves it, right? Because you see it. But why do they love it? They love that story about Ernie, the ghost. There was no Ernie. We have we do things with the with the third grade. Every third grader comes through our museum. We do all the all the historic sites we take them to, and I love that program. But the only thing they know about lighthouses is Ernie the ghost, which is not a true story. Ledge Light is just a couple of miles offshore. And you were out there when the Coast Guard was there with the supervisor and three young guys who were bored out of their minds. They could hear the music and even smell the wafts of the cookout from Ocean Beach. And they'd just go crazy. They'd just start picking on each other because it was so boring and so much what they didn't want to be doing, just sitting out on that rock, right? Right. And, and and that brings up another point, the lighthouses. Harbor light is on shore because it directs you to the harbor. Race rock is on a treacherous rock. Ledge light marks the end of, of a treacherous ledge that came out from Groton. So if these places are marked and you know where they are on the chart, it'll steer you safely into the harbor. So that, that's their, their purpose. But Everybody knows the story of Ernie. In fact, Jim Streeter, the Groton historian, did a deep dive into the history and discovered that it was at Southwest Ledge Lighthouse, which I believe Mary is the one you visited off of New New Haven, um, where a keeper had killed himself. And they were just clever, the Coast Guard out there at uh, ledge light. And the, the guys were picking on each other and having fights, whatever. So he started switching off the lights and untying the boat and saying, did you do that? And these guys would saying, no, no, we didn't do it. Of course not. And the legend, legend of Ernie grew up and it got passed around from supervisor to supervisor to keep the younger Coast Guardsmen kind of off base so they wouldn't be quite so agitated towards each other while they were out there. That is the actual true story of Ernie Ernie the Ghost. And I've told that to groups going out there. And recently, a man said, you will go to Coast Guard Hell for revealing that secret. You know, it was one of their big secrets. You know, that brings up the fact
0: that I've discovered living in Connecticut that anything that involves salt water is going to need a lot of maintenance. Yeah. yeah. What are some of the more unusual repairs you've had to make to these three lighthouses?
1: Well, where do we begin really? Because, um, but let me tell you a story that sort of follows on what I just said. We, when we got the lighthouse, I knew nothing at that point about lighthouses and it had been awarded maybe in 2001 2002 but it wasn't given to the maritime society until there was lead paint remediation by the coast guard and that took about 7 years so when I was hired there was there was no there was no lighthouse we got it and, you know, New London Maritime Society was a bit of a white elephant at the time. Nothing, nobody wanted the job, nothing happening. And uh, all of a sudden, our new board president said, well, we have to paint the lighthouse, which is a big undertaking. And, uh, you know, OK, we'll we'll give it a shot. And we did it in 2014. At the end of the summer, we did a press conference down on the beach and said, And I thought all these people would come because I had worked in in Washington, D.C. I thought I I was this big press maven. I could bring in all the press. No, we got Patch and we got the day. We got two two people. And I thought, well, great, this is going to we're going to raise a lot of money with this. However, within 24 hours, the very next morning, The secretary of the Carpenters Union had read Patch, and she loved the Harbor Lighthouse. That was like her touchstone. And she asked her boss, and she went down the hall and asked the Painters Union and the scaffolding company. And within 24 hours, less than 24 hours, the scaffolding, the painting, the assembling of the scaffolding by the carpenters, all of that was donated to us so a full uh like phase one restoration repointing all of that was done to harbor light just not in four years as i'd imagined but in about nine months and uh it was so much fun to have the scaffolding all the way up to the lantern so that you could walk up outside the lighthouse and see see all of this work and there are just so many interesting things about it—the different, the different materials, the replacement they used, and how the the metals expanded at different rates. You know, there's just so much to learn there. And now we're learning out at Race Rock about this these stones just sort of being heaved, but by, by these terrific storms and waves and currents that are out there. And at Ledge Light, uh, somebody shot one of the windows with a BB gun and uh, in the lantern room, it has a very beautiful diagonal panes of glass, you know, like uh, Harbor light and and race rock have the vertical panes, but ledge light has those very beautiful crisscross panes. And there it, it was very interesting to learn from our architects that those sort of float in their frames and every year the pins would be taken out the front, the, the glass would be taken out, and a sort of a bushing would be replaced. So that there were the lighthouses, as I was saying about the lenses, they were the scientific, they were, they were like a scientific instrument. They were the, the, the leading science of their day. And every piece fits together in a very sensible, logical way. And they all serve a couple of functions. So by having the glass float, you had sort of transpiration between the outside and the inside. What has happened over the years is that people have caulked those panels in place and painted them so that there is no, no breathing and one panel, the Sinks and it gets like a clamshell series of fractures, and as that one sinks, the one next to it sinks, and the cracks go all the way around the outside. It's very interesting. It's it's uh, sad, but it is interesting to see how these things work. And that glass is one of the things that will be replaced in the correct way, probably next summer. Uh, one one of the staggeringly bad things, but it's a good thing about this lighthouse work is everything has to be reviewed through the National Park Service and everything takes so long. And our working season is so short that it's just um, a great frustration. So do any of these street light
0: lighthouses that you manage now still serve as lighthouses? Do they have an automated light in them?
1: Yeah, they are all active aids to navigation. And they are run, uh, there is not electricity. The cables have been cut or have rusted, uh, bringing electricity from shore. So they are run by solar panels for both the foghorn and the uh, beacon
0: lantern. Now, I understand that the foghorn at one of your lighthouses historically was contentious because people didn't want to listen to the foghorn.
1: Well, you're bringing up the summer people again, right? Right. The summer people, including the O'Neills, because there is a long day's journey into night where the mother is like laying there on her chaise and she says that damn foghorn, stop it. (laughs) You know, it was people. It's interesting to me. You know, it's interesting, the the, the, uh, pre-existent nonconforming use of the property, this big part of the property on what wasn't even Pequot Avenue yet, because there was no road put through, was the lighthouse. And the lighthouse shone 360 degrees and had a foghorn. And when the uh, Pequot colony was built and the summer people came in, they didn't like the foghorn. And they petitioned the mayor, who, of course, said, yes, of course, we'll move it. But the uh, ferry captains wrote a letter. You know, the, the mariners wrote a letter and said, we need that foghorn. Well, in fact, the foghorn went to ledge light. And that is where the boats are. The boats are not on shore. And then they put black glass at the back of the lighthouse so that the light doesn't shine into the homes on shore. And, you know, the modifications to to mollify the neighbors. We all do that, Susan. I want to
0: thank you so much for sharing all your knowledge about the three lighthouses in New London, all of which arrangements can be made to visit. And I'll put more information in our show notes. Where can people find information about your organization, Susan?
1: Our website is the best place, n l dot o r g. We have a weekly email blast that's opened by 2,500, not as many as you, Mary, but we do have a pretty good group of people who open it every week. And when we have a new tour, we had some very special tours out to Little Gull Lighthouse this summer, which is about to be sold. So that's not going to happen again. Those go into the blast first so that every Sunday morning at eight o'clock, you can be the first to know about new tours. So the, the website is the place to go.
0: Well, I'm signing up for that because next year, I wanna go see what you've done and go out to these lighthouses again. And Jordan, I wanna thank you so much for taking the time to give us a firsthand account. Thank you. ladies. There are many ways to visit Connecticut lighthouses. There will be more information in the show notes. In the summer, the New London Maritime Society takes visitors by boat to see both the interior and exterior of its lighthouses out in the Sound. The Norwalk Seaport Association also schedules summer boat trips out to Sheffield Island. The Cross Sound Ferry from New London has a cruise that includes sailing by eight lighthouses. They have dates available until October 9th. And if you want a place to take a fall road trip, try Lighthouse Point Park in New Haven a great place to see an early lighthouse, take a walk on the beach, or eat a sandwich. Lighthouse Point Park is open until November 1st. Fresh episodes of Grading the Nutmeg are brought to you every two weeks with support from our listeners. You can help us continue to produce the podcast by donating directly to Grading the Nutmeg on the Connecticut Explored website at ctexplore.org. Click the Donate button at the top, then look for the Grading the Nutmeg donation link at the bottom. Donations in any amount are greatly appreciated, and we thank you. This episode of Grading the Nutmeg was produced by Mary Donahue and engineered by Patrick O'Sullivan at HighWattageMedia.com. This is Mary Donahue. Join us in two weeks for our next episode of Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history.